In this episode of Funkatopia's Purple Primetime, we sit down with Owen Husney. And for those who don't know who Owen Husney is, he is Prince's very first manager and essentially the one who discovered Prince. He was given a tape and he shopped it to all the record labels and he knew that he had something insanely special and as we were in the middle of celebrating the 40th anniversary of prince's first album for you we felt that it was absolutely necessary to sit down with owen and kind of discuss exactly everything that was happening at that time not only that but at one point in time prince was his roommate so we certainly had to figure out exactly what it's like to live with Prince. And on top of that, the thought process that took place when you're gifted with something as phenomenal as the one and only Prince. So here it is, our interview with Owen Husney. Please give a warm round of applause for the one and only Mr. Owen Husney on the line. Hello, sir. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hi. <laughs> How you doing? And they ain't lying, that's for sure. <laughs> it's really me. <laughs> So How's we, it going out there today? It's going fantastic. It's beautiful weather here in Atlanta. Well, a little bit sprinkly. Uh, what's the weather up there in New York? Even oh, yeah. Here it's damp and cold. And Owen, how's the weather over there? Oh, it's really cold today. It went to 73, so oh, we're freezing. 73. <laughs> 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 so I, 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 want, I want to kind of break this. I was just going to say. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I'll just tell you this real quickly. My wife is from Los Angeles. So when we got married, you know, I'm from Minnesota, you know, where we build strong character because it's 20 below zero for you know, two months in a row. And, uh, and so we're dating out here and it's 60 degrees and she brings out a parka. I said, are you kidding? Let me talk to you for a minute. Are you kidding me? You got a parka that's suntan weather where I come from. I'm going to get the gel to put on my arms, you know? So anyway, Sorry to interrupt. No, that was perfect. So, so what? No, that's what, cool. What made you move from from uh, Minnesota over to LA? Was it strictly the weather, or was it simply just uh, opportunities are more prevalent over there? Well, you know, my business. Good question. You know, my my life had become more and more about uh, Los Angeles and the business that was out here at a at a certain point, and uh, I knew that you know, to continue my career and, and to do what I wanted to do, I needed to be right where everyone was and uh, everything I needed to work with was. But to tell you the truth, at one point I said, you know, if I live conservatively to be 75, let's be conservative about this. Oh, I'm only going to have a few summers left, you know, in my life if I stay in Minnesota. But if I move to L.A., I can quadruple the number of summer. It can be summer all the time. You know, I'm not one of these guys, you know, and even Prince, you know, would say the cold did a couple of things. It kept the riffraff out of town because really, really hard to hold some, really hard for a thug to hold you up in the street when it's 25 below zero, your handshake, you can't even get whatever, you know, knife or gun you're going to use out because it's so damn cold. But also, 
the cold forced, you know, we have basements in, in Minneapolis. It forced every, me, I was a musician, no different. The cold forces you to stay inside, to be in your, you know, practice your craft, practice your guitar, your keyboards, your vocals. Because you can't go out, you know, you can't go outside. So it's a great, the cold was a great taskmaster for creativity. It just, it, it, and, and it's really, I, I wanted to play guitar. And, and, and late fall, I went down my parents' basement, learned how to play guitar, came out in the spring, a blues player, about 20 pounds lighter. And, and, and because that's all you do is you sit down and practice. Yeah, I heard you had you had a band for a little while, and before even you know before the whole Prince story, you had a you were pretty successful in your own right. I mean, you had you were doing a lot of you know playing around town and and got a little bit of traction there as well, from what I understand. Yeah, well, we had uh, uh, I I got into a band and sold my clarinet and bought a Sears Silvertone Cherry Red guitar, with the strings were so far off the fretboard that you could either play guitar or slice salami on the, on the, uh, on, on the guitar. But eventually, eventually I got a Fender guitar and eventually I started practicing my craft, got a band together. And the interesting thing about it, and I talked to my students at UCLA about this as well, you know, we weren't the top shelf musicians in town, but we, we, when we played together, there was a heavy wall of sound and we had attitude and that really helps get you across even better than some of the better musicians. So we cut a record, borrowed $500 from our lead singer's uncle, went in the studio, cut uh, a, a white boy garage band version of a Bobby Bland blues song called Turn On Your Love Light and did this version. I brought it out to the radio station in the cold I had girls lined up so the, to call into the station. I said, look, if the DJ, which they did in those days, if the, in 1902, if, <laughs> if the DJ gives this thing a, a, a spin, start calling and don't stop calling and call back and change your voice and keep requesting. And the DJ gave it a spin at like 11 o'clock at night. And all of a sudden the phone lines lit up. And he says, hey, I think we got a hit here, you know. So they added him into the rotation on the station. And then it, it went number one on that station, went number one on the competing station in town. And then it went number one, or I'm not number one, I'm sorry. It went top 10 in 19 other cities around the U.S. So in my uh, senior year of high school, I played our graduation party with our band. Then we left out on tour. And I toured for about, you know, almost five years, about four years. And then it was, we made a lot of money. We spent it all. And then it was over. <laughs> really over. <laughs> so I said, all right, I'm going to help other musicians. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done. I love playing my instrument, but I'm done. I, I can help other musicians. And that's kind of how I got into, you know, being a manager. And then along comes a little, well, I won't say a little kid. Here along comes a kid, 18 years old, with probably a cassette tape in his hand. And you, you so how, how exactly did this all unfold where you, did you realize at the time when you first met him or when you first heard the tape that, did you, I mean, I don't think anybody can actually totally, completely envision 
you know, the trajectory that he would have in his career. But kind of tell the story about how he even came into your life and how that all started. Well, I credit Chris Moon, who had a, stu- a studio in town called Moon Sound, little eight-track studio. He had been working with Chris. And uh, I they they tried to put together a demo tape and you know take a few pictures and that and that and that kind of stuff uh but believe me chris was moving in the right direction he was really good and but they couldn't make anything happen prince had gone to new york to be with his sister sharon uh to try maybe to get a deal she knew some people that she was gonna hook him up with and you know prince is one of these people that has you know, this tremendous sense of intuition. And for some reason, it didn't feel right to him. And it was just purely random that Chris had walked into my office in Minneapolis in 1976 with, you know, this little demo tape that they had been doing. They weren't having much luck. And he played it and he, you know, came to seek my help. And I had my answers all prepared. When, every, when anybody ever wanted to play me a demo tape, usually it was the parents of some artist or some, you know, friend helping them or something. And my answer was always the same. You know, uh, when I listened to the demo, you know, it would be, you know, it's promising. Come back in four years, you know, <laughs> and, and maybe I'll deal with it then. And when Chris came into my office, I literally made him sit in my office for three days before I would see him. And, but he was there. And he was persistent. And one day I came back in and I said, all right, come on in. Let's hear this tape. And uh, the minute he put it on, I was like shuffling papers on my desk. And the minute he put this thing on, because I was a musician, I kind of listened differently than most other people do. Because you, when you're a musician, you listen, you know, there's a lot of other stuff you listen for. The minute he put that on, I think it was soft and wet. Uh, that that they had written together in the studio, my ears perked up and they had my attention because a lot of music that I had heard in that day for people that wanted me to manage them or do something with their material, it was so derivative. So look, let's say you had Earth, Wind, and Fire in those days. People would come in with demo tapes that sounded like they were Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I'm going, no, there is an Earth, Wind, and Fire you know, we don't need a second one. And, or people would come in sounding like Hendrix or people would come in sounding just like whatever it was of the day. But when, when I listened to this tape, yes, it, I could spot the derivative artists. I, I could spot that, but they were attempting to go after something new to create a new sound. Right. And so it wasn't just, completely derivative they were attempting to do something else and it was so original the end result now look the songs were very long they probably you know they were eight track recordings they probably couldn't have made the transition to you know vinyl at the time but i could hear through it and and there was a vulnerability to and i didn't know who this lead singer was i thought it was a group there was a I, there was a vulnerability with a falsetto that came in on soft and wet, and I didn't know whether to hug 
to whoever the lead singer was going to be, or I didn't know what I should do. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was so wonderful to hear this falsetto come in. So that's when I, I stopped the, the cassette because it was a cassette demo. And I stopped the cassette and I said to Chris, who's the band. And, you know, a lot of people have heard this story. And he said, well, it's not, it's not a band. It's one kid. We co-wrote this song. He's playing all the instruments and singing everything. Yeah. Well, actually he said, it's not a band. I said, Oh, you mean it's just a bunch of studio musicians? Cause I don't want to work. You can't put studio musicians on the road. He said, no, it's one kid writing and singing. So I was like, immediately finish. Let's finish listening to this. I was trying to be big man cool, you know, but inside I was like, oh, Lord, this is unbelievable. And it, it was the way that they were fusing the keyboards and the guitars and kind of, and then coming in with the, the backing tracks and the vocals that I could tell they were going for something new. Right. So he tells me it's one kid, and I, I, I said, what's his name? And he says, Prince Nelson. I said, oh, great. So now we've got the prince of some country who's playing all the instruments and singing everything. Is this a fairy tale? Are you lying to me? Come on. And he said, no, it's actually one kid. So I just said, look, let's get him on the phone right now. Where is he? And I, you know, cause when you're in the, in the business, you need to move fast. If you hear something, because if you don't, somebody else will move fast. You know, in the music business, if you lay down your sword to rest by a tree, somebody will take their sword and stab you. That's just the way it is, you know, so you got to move quickly. Yeah. So uh, I called him and uh, Chris said he's living with, he's with his sister in New York right now. So I got him on the phone and I talked to him, but his voice live was so much deeper than this falsetto. And one of the things I, I've said this before to other people, one of the things I kept thinking was, Damn, I hope he's not nasty looking. Because <laughs> he would have been 500 pounds, you know. <laughs> I want this dream to continue, you know. And and so I spoke to him on the phone. His voice was really deep. And I thought, is this the same? are they playing me? Is this the same falsetto that I just heard on the, you know, on the demo? And so I got on and he was a man of very few words. And, you know, I don't know why I said it, but I... At the end of the call, I just said, look, man, you're young, and my, I, I feel that my job is to protect you. There's a lot of BS in this business, and there's a lot of wolves out there, and I think that my main job is going to – and I don't even know why I said that. I was actually embarrassed after I got off the phone with him for saying that, you know? And then uh, Chris got on the phone, and they wanted to come over to my house when Prince got back in town, and then he came over to my house, and, and – uh you know, that was the beginning. Yeah, that's amazing because so. I tell you, it's some of the things I, I've I've heard about the just about the ongoing things, the battles that you had to had to endure. Just even when you were marketing him to Warner Brothers, you, you had brought up that you know some bands come in there and they sound just like Earth, Wind, and Fire. And from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, who they were going to have Maurice White do the production for this album initially, I guess he was essentially yeah. playing. He was, he was going to be the person that was well, going to produce Dupa, this album. They wanted, uh, right. Uh, in the beginning, we had a luncheon with CBS records and because they wanted to sign them or Columbia records. 
and they brought in Verdeen White to produce them, thinking <laughs> that that would impress Prince. But Prince was already way beyond that and respectful, but beyond it. And then when Maurice White came up out of Warner Brothers, which I think a lot of people would have jumped at the chance because these guys were, <laughs> they were one of the best, yeah. you know? Yeah. And Prince had this, you know, he was very fearful that if someone like a Maurice White produced him, that that stamp of that sound would be on him. And, but he had never made a full album before, especially on his own, you know, but the, so he wrote, he actually wrote me a note, which I still have. And it was so interesting because here's an 18 year old kid. And the note that he wrote me was so respectful and articulate. It was, I really appreciate where earth, wind and fire. And I really appreciate and respect Maurice white, but here's the reasons I don't feel he should produce me. I really want to produce myself. You know, he didn't want to have their timestamp of their sound be put on him because, you know, he know he knew many acts have a shelf life. Every career does. That's just the way it works. And he didn't want that timestamp put on him. And he really wanted to produce himself. I, after having lived with him, I believed in him and I believed him. And I said this before, Prince would have come over to my house and, you know, sat down on my couch and laid down and said, put the game on man and smoked a joint or something like that. I never would have managed him. But because he was so brilliant and so focused and so intuitive, I, I felt that it was my duty to fight for him. So when he wrote me that letter, we kind of organized a test uh, at Warner Brothers to see if he could do it. And I have to give it to Warner Brothers. They really, really did back him. When Lenny Warnaker, who was the president, heard him in the studio and watched him go in and record drums without a click track and then add the bass and add everything, he came to me directly in the studio, in the hallway in the studio, and said, you know what, man? I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'll, we'll give it to him. We believe in him, too. And, you know, they got it. They were a very artist-friendly label at that time. And they allowed artists to develop, which does not exist today. The artist development is practically gone at the label. It's embarrassing. And right. But... I have to say that they, from, from the top down, from the chairman, Mo Austin, down to Russ Thyret, who was senior VP of promotion, who actually walked in a meeting and said, if you don't sign this kid, I quit. To Lenny Warrenker, who was the head of all their A&R department and their music department, saying to me, we'll give it to him, which was unheard of for an 18-year-old kid yeah. who had never made an album. Unheard of when, you know, when they were going to have a big investment in him. So I have, and it was really interesting is that I ran into the studio and I said to Prince, man, you got it. And he said, Owen, that's great, but I'm finishing the song. I don't have step any, any time. I do not have step. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he wanted to finish the song. And then he told Warner Brothers, he told Warner Brothers, don't pigeonhole me. And you can all pick up on what that means. Don't, don't pigeonhole me into a genre. I make music for all people. Right. Yeah. And well, so that really, and, and, and they allowed that to happen. 
and and it wasn't just it so, wasn't just Warner Brothers that was in the studio. From what I understand, there was also uh, that as far as the production part was concerned, you know, Gary Katz was in there from um, Steely Dan, and they had who else? Yeah. Uh, Ted Templeman from yeah. uh, Doobie Brothers and and Van Morrison, Titleman, Ted Templeman, right? Yeah, so he didn't for, know who they were. He uh, thought they were janitors, you know, just, and they were the top producers, so, multi-platinum selling producers in the day. And they're know? all standing there watching and, him produce. Uh, they were watching him go in and play an instrument and come back into the control room and listen to it, then go out and play another. You know, he built the <laughs> rhythm section. So he built, he played the drums, then he added bass. Oh, my gosh. And it, it was mind-blowing. That's incredible. And it was mind-blowing. On, it would be mind-blowing if a 60-year-old guy did it. It was quad, quad billion times mind-blowing to watch a young kid go in and do this and have such a sense about what worked now he still had a growth curve you know and he you know he grew and took his audience with him um uh you know but he had a lot of it you know and you know a lot of people say to me well man you're the man that discovered prince and i say you know chris moon kind of brought me this thing but i'll tell you to be honest with you prince discovered himself we if you look back on this between Chris and myself and myself really, because I put my wife, my life, my home, my business, everything on the line for him. But really our, our job was to get him at a certain level. And, and, you know, uh, like I say, the minute I heard this demo tape, I realized that I had to bring in David Z, who's a producer who wound up working with Prince for a long time. Mm -hmm. I realized that I had to bring in David Z to redo the demos in a state-of-the-art studio. And that allowed Prince to grow at that time. And he learned a lot from David. Mm. He also learned a lot from Tommy Vaccari, who was on the job in San Francisco when we went to make the album. Uh, and, and, you know, Prince had this ability to absorb. So really, you know, it's, I, we have a saying in the business, there are, certain artists who are flavor of the month we all know who they are Mm -hmm. there's artists who are flavor of the year there are artists that come along once every 10 years there's artists that come along every 50 years and prince is one of those every 50 year kind of artists you know i put lennon john lennon in there miles davis in there i put you know you know who the characters are bob dylan there are certain other major artists you know of all genres and he's just one of those once every 50 year kind of dudes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I just have one more question for you before I turn it over to Nikki T. Cause I know Nikki's got some questions that he's just dying to ask you, but I just kind of got on a roll. Sorry about that, Nikki. Um, no, no, no. Fine. It's so good. So, I'm enjoying it. Okay. So here's, here's the other question that I have. And I know it caught some people, I know it caught some people's ear. And uh, that was that when you lived with Prince now the, from the, the story that I've heard, and there was a a, a, a couple things um, about this. So for, oh, for those of you just joining us, my my apologies. I <laughs> like I don't run a radio show. For those of you just joining us, we are speaking to the one, the only Owen Husney, the gentleman who discovered Prince and was Prince's first manager. And uh, we're just kind of just having some uh, stories. If you want to uh, follow him, you can do so on a variety of different ways. You can find him on Facebook or on Twitter at, at @rckmgr. 
And uh, he's also got a book that's going to be coming out tomorrow. And we're going to be talking, I do want to talk to, so when we have five minutes to go, uh, uh, Owen, you have to tell me when that is. So, cause I, we need to talk about your book real quick um, before you head out. And, um, but as far cool. as the uh, story where he's living with you, because at this point, you know, I, I guess you said he was living with his sister at the time. So when did the transition of him moving in with you happen? And what was the thought process there? I mean, you obviously knew that you had something amazing on your hands. And at this point, are you just feeling like obligated that you need to, I, I need to give this, I need to give this guy housing. I need to give him whatever he needs to do his craft or, and, and so kind of talk about that process. And also like many people here want to know what's Prince like, as far as a roommate <laughs> is concerned. So that's my question. <laughs> Sorry, roommate. <laughs> uh, well, both of us were pretty treacherous because we both like to play practical jokes, but you know, it, you know, he started hanging at my house in Minneapolis, obviously. And I had a piano and I had guitars and stuff like that. And I was in the process of raising money for him because we, we got backers so that we could buy the instrument and, you know, synthesizer or very early synthesizers, which kind of defined, you know, the Minneapolis sound very early on. And, um, and so he was hanging out at the house, the real serious living experience was when we moved to San Francisco to make that first album. And I think I was talking to you a little bit earlier about it, that, you know, you really get to know someone, you know, my time ended at a certain point. Prince became an icon in, in the world. I'm not as familiar with the icon as I was with the young kid you know, who probably didn't have the layers and the veneer that you get added on because of the business and because you're growing and becoming a superstar. It was very unfiltered. It was very original, very deep. And, you know, people say to me, well, you know, I say, I can't talk about the icon with the bodyguards and the entourage. I can't talk about that. I just talk about this young, vulnerable kid who I knew I had to protect, to, you know, to come live with me. And we were talking about it, I think, before, uh, earlier today, today about this, is that, you know, you get to know someone on a whole different basis when you're doing their laundry and making breakfast and you're, you know, having lunch before you go to the studio and, you know, telling them to get their dishes in the sink. And Andre, Andre Simone, uh, he came out to live with us because he and Prince are pretty tight. They were pretty soulmates, pretty serious soulmates at that time. I knew at the time when Prince said, I want Andre to come out with us and live with us, that that was a no, there was no question that I would push back on that because Andre was seriously, is seriously talented. And when they would jam together, they were like, you know, in that mind reading, you know, that Jedi mind reading thing. Right. And they really had a lot to do. So when Andre came to live with us, in San Francisco, it was a no brainer. I really loved having him there. I loved being with Prince. My wife was kind of the, uh, the other mother, you know, away from Minneapolis and we were a family unit. And it's a lot different when you have that familial, you know, family unit thing uh, and you're cooking and cleaning and, you know, yelling at people to take the garbage out, just like a family, you know, I'm here telling Prince to take the garbage out, man, it's your turn. You know, well, no, it's Andre's turn. No, it's your turn to take the, you know, 
and as I was saying earlier, the only difference was instead of taking these kids and dropping them off at soccer or hockey, I was dropping them off at a recording studio to make history. <laughs> that was the big difference. But you really do get to know someone on a whole different level. And the experience that I have of Prince, you know, is on a whole different level than that. Yeah, he was who he was. He was Prince. He was very definite about what he wanted and what he did not want. But, you know, we had to break the tension a lot. So we did a lot of practical jokes. You know, Prince would take a squirt gun into a restaurant and we'd all, we didn't know it. We'd be sitting there and he'd be under the table squirting it up in the air. And people all around the restaurant would be like, where, where's that? What's the movie scraping off their shoulders? What is that? You know, uh, at one time, David Z came out to live with us because he helped on the vocals. And he brought a fake hand with him, and we were standing next to a bus stop. <laughs> and Prince, Prince had the fake hand, you know, over his sleeve, and he pretended that he got stuck in the bus door. You know, we had no intention of riding the bus, but he pre- and people were looking in horror as they saw his hand come off his body as the bus pulled away. The people that were riding the bus. So, you know, it's the same thing that dares you to be different on stage, that dares you to take these chances. I think they're very similar, you know, and we played some pretty wicked practical jokes. So, like I say, when we were all living together, we were a real, a a real family unit. And, and, you know, in my talks with Andre, you know, just even within the past few years, he said, man, we had a real, Prince and I had a real sense of family with you and your wife. Our dog, Shauna, was there. Uh, my dog is in a lot of those pictures. If you see the Bob Whitman photos at my house. Uh, uh, it's funny how my dog has become famous now. I see on Twitter, the dog has a name from that picture. It's Shauna, you know. Uh, so is this and the same so pictures that... We were there. There was also, now these pictures have kind of been released. There was one where uh, Prince is sitting at a piano. And I think I saw you mention it like a while back about your um was it your your your, mother. your your mother's picture was sitting yeah. on top of the piano yeah and that picture has gone worldwide and damn my mother's <laughs> immortalized with prince that's fantastic damn, who ever thought that was gonna happen you know that's pretty uh, wild and that was at my house in my <laughs> yeah it is it, it is and you know but it's interesting, and I'll, I'll give you a quote, because we were there for work, and we were there, seriously. David V. Rifkin uh, has this quote that I have in my book. And he was saying, you know, Owen, you and I and all of us around us, Bobby V., his brother, we were, we were just doing what we loved. We didn't know we were going to be contributing to history. We just did our passion. We just did what we loved. So when we were doing all this, we never thought, oh, my God, look what we're doing. Oh, and we never got hung up on the ego side of it. It was we're doing what we love. You know, I used to, even when I was playing guitar on stage and then after when I was managing and managing other artists, I kept thinking, damn, I'm getting paid to do this. I would do this for free. It's so great, you know. Yeah. We're creating. People are hearing it. It's, it's breaking in the world, you know. Uh, and that goes for Andre. And when I managed him, it goes for Jesse Johnson. When I managed him and many, many other artists I was involved with, it's like I would get, I would pay to do this, let alone make money for doing this. So, uh, you know, but this, we were there to work. And a lot of our practical jokes were the result of trying 
it would get very intense in the studio. Prince wanted a perfect album. He admitted later on, and I've even seen it in print, where he said, maybe I tried too hard to make it perfect, you know, because he was really striving. He, you know, when you listen to For You, and you listen to the first song in For You, which is For You, those are impeccable. You know, the, the, the um, acapella that he did, it's impeccable. But I'll tell you what the genius about it, and this is what the unexplained magic of the business is of creative. When you hear those acapella voices, I've heard a lot of people that do all of their vocals acapella. And it sounds, it's very mono, monotone sounding. It's, you can tell it's one person doing all the vocals. When you listen to For You and you hear how he structured that, it's got layers. And it's like there's many different personalities. You know, what makes a band great are many different personalities coming mm. together to form the sound. Right. Prince had the ability as one person to create a sound like it was different personalities. That was the true, hidden, you know, unbelievable magic about, you know, what he did. In my mind, there's other people who might say, well, Owen's wrong or this, blah, blah, blah. This is purely from having been in the room. You know what I'm saying? And so... It, 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 it was just this undefinable magic that when he played all the instruments, he brought different personalities into playing these instruments. I'm sure he took it for granted, but I've listened to a lot of people playing all the instruments, and it sounds like it's one person playing all the instruments, you can tell. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of a, you know, the magic of it. So living together and doing this and hanging out, he would come home at night like, you know, instead of coming home and saying, dad, look at this trophy I got at, you know, soccer today, he'd come home and play me this song that he just recorded. And I'm going, Oh my God, this is so fantastic. Well, I came home at one point. I was home. I came home and Tommy Vicari had been working in the studio the first week of the second. And I, I came, I, I, this was in San Francisco and he had his head in his hand. And I said, Tommy, what's wrong? Are you sick? What's wrong? He said, no. And I said, what's wrong, Tommy? He was sitting on the, on the sofa with his head in his hands, and he looked up at me, and he was like, it's Beatles time, meaning, and he had had a lot of hit records in his past, you know, that he engineered and produced. What he meant by that is it's unbelievable what's going on in the studio. It's unbelievable what we're doing. It's, it's above and beyond. And it was blowing his mind. So it was really cool. Really cool experience. Wow. Did, um, did Prince, when, 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 you, when Prince was recording the song for you, the acapella version, well, acapella tune, did he explain to you um, how he came up with the concept and the idea behind that, actually? No, he, you know, he never explained too much about what he was doing, but he just said, I want the first song to be an introduction that people will remember and it will be different from almost anything else you've heard on record. And he really, from his heart, he meant it for you. This was really meant for the audience and it, it, it wasn't like, look how bad I am, and it wasn't ego. He really meant 
this is for you. And when he did those vocals on there, and, you know, David helped him uh, uh, do it because David had perfect pitch. Prince understood that. Here's an interesting thing. David also knew that when you have perfect, when, and, and Prince could sing perfectly, but when, when harmonies are, you know, absolutely correct and in tune, it doesn't sound right. For harmonies, the way he did them on For You, they have to be a little sharp or flat of each other. That's what gives you the richness and the depth, and Prince got that. But he really wanted to create something for you, the audience because he cared so much about his audience. And that's the whole concept of that was, here's my gift to you. Here's what I'm doing for you. And that's what Prince always was. He was giving of himself, turning himself inside out, really, to give for you. Of course, that would be the title of the album and, and how his introduction was to the music. Um, I have a question for you. The song Baby. Um, we understand that Patrice Russian was uncredited on that track. Can you tell us how, being he's so prolific in the studio, creating all the sounds together, how was it that she got to be part of that record? You know, I think Tommy Vacari brought her in, and I think Prince wanted someone to work with him on the keyboards, you know, and, and to do that. I don't know much about the detail. I remember being in the studio with her when I used to come down and pop in. I never was the kind of manager who sat until everybody threw you out. You know, I wanted to make sure everybody was happy doing their gig right. and they were creating nicely. And then I was popped out, but I was there and, you know, she was just showing him a few things. He was absorbing. Uh, was she uncredited? I thought at one point she was credited on the first incarnation of the album. I'm maybe yeah. wrong about that. I have to check actually. Uh, I, think, I think you may be right. I have to check, but when I was checking out all the, the, the different notes online, it said, I think, originally uncredited, but I'm going to double-check that on the current releases that are out. Um, the, yeah, and because also... Because she's a talented the, uh, musician. The, the, oh, she's extremely talented, and I think when Tommy mentioned it, you know, then uh, when Tommy mentioned it, I think that, you know, he immediately understood that and wanted her in there working. I can't give you the total in-depth but I know that she helped him and probably contributed, you know, in, in, in a good way on that. Were you and, involved and with was, the, um, uh, oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm done. Oh, I was going to, I was just going to ask, um, when he was formulating all the songs that Prince had, that he said, okay, we're now going to release this album for you. Of course he recorded, I'm sure, more songs than what was originally released in the beginning. Were you involved with the process of how the particular tracks would be layered or which songs would make the album and not make the album? No, he pretty much made those decisions. I have some stuff that I actually have some paperwork where he was experimenting with the songs. And there was going to be a song that he had written called Make It Through the Storm. That because on the original, right, the, that was the original incarnation, exactly. I remember that, right. Yeah, and then he decided he didn't. It's a great song, by the way, and uh, um, and and I think that um, there. But he was pretty much changing it up in the studio, uh, and and then he, and also from the point about a week before we we were originally supposed to record 
in Minneapolis at Sound 80. But they were so happy to have him doing that album there that they changed out the board, the control room board. And when Tommy came in to do it, if things were going wrong, it takes a month or two to build in a proper soundboard and get all the kinks worked out of it. So then we decided to, you know, to go to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, pretty much we left it up to Prince to decide. He might ask us what we thought, but we knew, hey, he knows exactly what he wants to do. I would have liked to have seen Make It Through the Storm on the album. I would like to think there was a couple of other songs uh, that I would have liked to have seen, but hey, you know, I'm not the creator here. Uh, he would have us listen to stuff and he would tell by our reaction. A lot of times if he was really, he's got a song called In Love uh, on For You. And I remember him coming home so excited one night, you know, in San Francisco. It was like your kid would come home and I'm sound asleep, snoozing away. It's like three, four in the morning. He's like, Owen, got to hear this, got to hear this. Okay, so I'm waking up and I'm listening to that song. And it's, wow, man, where did you come up with that? He probably was up all night and had come up with that song before he went in the studio. So, he, you know, he, he was prolific in, the, in a way. But, you know, success doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have to work your ass off 24-7. And Prince worked his ass off 27-7, okay? Yes. And so he was up all night writing stuff, and then he'd say, I just wrote something. we got to go in the studio now. We're all like in our pajamas, scratching our heads, trying to drink coffee. Let's go now. And he had written something at night, and then he would go in and record it. So he changed the album. I don't, not 100%. He probably changed it maybe 20% or something, at least from, I'm remembering now, 40 years ago. But that was kind of the way that worked. Now, I had heard that there was a little bit of a uh, story regarding the song So Blue and your involvement, not necessarily directly with that song, but that Prince kind of presented that song to you during, I guess, some type of personal thing that had happened between you. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, we had had, uh, I don't know, some kind of argument. And, you know, I, you know, look, he was young. I wanted to protect him. Our relationship was not, I was not Mr. Manager and he was Mr. Artist. It was a lot deeper than that, at least from my perspective on, you know, on that. So we never really argued. We never had any kind of fight or anything, you know, and, but one time we had had something about something and, and uh, he did not live too far from me. And um, he kind of walked out in a huff. And I was like, oh, it's kind of like having an argument with your wife or your girlfriend or something. Like, oh, man, you know. And, it, you know, several hours later, it was some time had passed. He called me up and said, Owen, come on over. I went over to his house and the door was open, front door was open. And I walked in. He was sitting on the kitchen floor. And he just played so blue. This was before the recording. Of, and he played so blue. And he didn't write the song for me. And he didn't write the song about our argument. But it was his way of saying, okay, I get it. You know, uh, you know let's, let's get by this. And we just sat on the kitchen floor and, and, and listened, listened to the song. And it was, uh, after that, it was done. It was all over. You know, it was done. Yep. And it was really funny because in the beginning, I was trying to get him to shorten his songs because I knew that the record labels 
the people at record, the A&R people at record labels have the attention of a, a, a gnat, a mosquito, you know, right. and they're on to the next. So I wanted some nursery rhyme. And that was repulsive to print because people who are ultimately as talented as he is, they want to display their full talent. And I'm like, no, we got to grab them. We got to give them the cold slap. We got to knock them down. And we got to, you know, we got to, and, and I, he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, think of the Beatles first song that we all got to know. I want to hold your hand. You know, it's practically a nursery rhyme. It's deep, but it's a nursery rhyme. And we need to get over the quickest way possible with these record labels. And he didn't like the idea that I wanted him to do kind of a nursery, you know, a, I said, give me a three-minute three song, max, two and a half minutes if possible. You know, and that was repulsive to a guy like that who's that creative and, you know, had that right. much vision. But I think he, you know, so he kind of, that was the second time. He walked out of my house in a huff because I suggested how dare I, and we hadn't even made the album yet, you know. <laughs> and then the next morning, there was something like, you know, uh, there was like a cassette at my front door when I went to get the paper, and I was like, here it was, asked, you know, you asked. <laughs> Actually, it was F-U, and it was a cassette, and I played out <laughs> machines, and it was a like two-and-a-half-minute ditty called um, I Like What You're Doing. And you know, he sort of got it that we needed something. Now, look, I'm not claiming that I thought Prince out of right. I'm not claiming that I did anything like that. I was only, I don't take any credit for any of that. It's all Prince. But what I did know is the quickest way to get over on record label. And that is hit them quick, in and out, and get the hell out. And, you know, most people that, that have their demos, they want people to hear, nine songs on their demos. No, give people two, maybe three songs, most three songs at the absolute most. Mm -hmm. If they dig it, they're going to say, do you have more songs than you own them? You see what I'm saying? Right. And that's structure wise and getting a deal. That's the angle I was coming from. I'm not teaching Prince how to write. Hell no. I just wanted the structure to be there so that we could, so that we could, uh, just get over on the label and it worked. You know, I gave him a press kit at the labels that said nothing that was done in my ad agency that I owned. There was nothing on there, but some pictures of him and one line. And you can read all about it in my book, by the way, how I formulated that with Prince and how we did that. And then just a couple of songs because they were blow away. And David had done the 24 track versions of them. And then we would go in to the label. I would gave him, gave him a press kit that said practically nothing on it, just a few pictures, and then just a couple of songs that were blow away. And everybody, well, where does he live? How many songs does he write? Does he have more songs? The minute you get somebody doing that in this business, you own them. Right. And then we had Prince in the Lobby. Well, where is he? Well, he's in the lobby. Do you want to meet him? Yeah, bring him in. And then that's how we, that's how we structured it. Wow, that's fantastic. So the methodology for getting over was mine. The talent and the songwriting was obviously with him. And, and before he came on with you, there you go. Who, who had, well, I mean, I know you had said that, you know, Chris Moon actually, you know, brought him to you. 
But who had you managed up to this point for Prince to give you so much faith that, yeah, this is the guy that's going to take me to the next level. This is the guy that's going to get me the record deal. What did you accomplish up to this point that had allowed Prince to kind of just open up to you and kind of just say, you know, here's everything I have. Let's do this. Well, yeah, there was a couple of things. Number one, I started out doing foods for major acts. I started out doing the dressing room food for major acts when they came into Minneapolis. So I was the guy folding the bologna sandwiches, you know, 21 or something like that. And, but I was privy to all the conversations of road managers, managers, and artists while I'm, you know, putting out nuts and fruit on the table. Right. So that was a big, that was my college. And, and hearing that and understanding that. Mm-hmm. And then in my book, I had spent an evening with Jimi Hendrix. You'll have to read about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we spent a whole night together, and I, I absorbed so much from there. Then I had managed an act called Muskie and Rap. Great duo, kind of a, not a folky duo, but they were, they were really, really, really good. Great songs, great harmonies. I managed them. I got real close to a record deal with them. I got, I had enough sense to get on a plane and get my ass out of Minneapolis and start dealing with the majors. And I almost had a record deal for them on Columbia records. And I learned a lot from that. And I managed them for a long time and got the gigs. Now remember, I also had been in a band myself. Right. I had to fire my manager because I didn't, the books didn't look good to me. You know, that's how I got really some experience. So I was building this, and then uh, a jazz singer named Al Jarreau came to me. Oh. He was from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I don't know if you guys know who Al Jarreau oh, is. Oh, yes. One of the great old oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So Al came in with his manager, and, and Al had had some near misses, and they wanted me to help, help him, but I didn't want to be a manager. But I was doing sort of managerial duties at that time for him, you know, I was connected to a, all the promoters that brought in acts, so I would put him on as an opening act. We, he spent a lot of time at my house. We talked music, future, but I really didn't want to manage him. But I was managing him because I was doing all the, uh, you know, managerial activity. But I wouldn't formally do it. And it's really interesting. I helped get him out through uh, another promoter that I was partners with. I helped get him out to L.A. And then there's a guy named Pat Rain. And Pat Raines um, signed him to a management agreement tonight. Pat was originally from Minneapolis. And then Pat called me about six months later and said, Owen, you're not going to believe it. I just signed Al to Warner Brothers record. I was so jealous. I couldn't (laughs) believe it. I wanted to be Pat Raines. I wanted to match. And then I got really sad. And I thought, okay, the next person that comes in here, I'm going to manage them. But, who is ever like Al Jarreau ever going to cross paths with me again in Minneapolis? That's a one in a billion shot. And then, I don't know, nine or 10 months later, in comes Prince. And so <laughs> the experience of me being in a band. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I was not a neophyte. I knew all the contacts. I right. built up contacts at Warner brothers. Mm-hmm. I knew all the ropes of promoting an artist. I knew all the ropes. I owned a studio. I knew all the ropes and ins and outs of studios. And one of my primary things was I was able to cut deals, you know, 
You have to. Um, right. You have to be able to cut deals on behalf of your artists. And I, I'm very good at doing that, you know, uh, and, you know, working out things to make it happen for the artist. And it's kind of a natural ability to do that because you can't pay everybody everything they want or you'll go broke. So you have to figure out a way to cut a deal to open the doors for them. So, you know, that was another one of the things that I brought to the table. And I had learned that, you know. I I had hung out with Jerry Weintraub. That's in my book um, about Elvis Presley's bed. You let you read about that. And But I learned from the great because I was the young setup guy. So I saw how the top guys, the Elvis Presley people, you know, I saw how they operated and what they did and how they were successful. And that really helped me, you know, quite a bit. You know, I, you know, I think the biggest point of my book is that a lot of people thought and felt that my life began and ended with Prince. And I really wanted the book to also explain the whole history of the characters I had bumped in and the, into, you know, prior to meeting him and how all of that helped. I had been on the road with Sonny and Cher, Alice Cooper. I had experienced some good and negative experiences with my stones. And I had been backstage with the Rolling Stones and I heard all the comments. So all of that was my college. I got thrown out of college. They came to me and said, <laughs> we don't think you're college material. And I was like, oh, great. I don't want to be here anyway. You know, tell my parents I was thrown out, you know. And then I started a business about four months after being thrown out of uh, the University of Minnesota. Never would have started my own business. And, but all of that had been a learning uh, 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 thing for me prior to getting involved with print. So I knew the ropes of backstage. I knew the studio. I knew how to cut a deal. I knew how to make things happen. And really, the best managers are the ones that make things happen for their artists. You don't have to be some super genius dude. You just have to know how to make things happen for your artist. So. Right. And the, for those of you just joining us, much it. for those of you just joining us, we have Owen Husney on the line. He was not only Prince's first manager, but he also the one that discovered Prince and brought him to us. And uh, it's we're just honored, <laughs> honored to have you here. And tomorrow is a couple of big things happening tomorrow. First off being that it is the 40th anniversary of the for you album how, how old does that make you feel how old does it make me feel <laughs> yeah, uh, i don't know let's see the goal you know there's i'm no spring chicken anymore by well, the way my <laughs> book title is famous right. people who've met me right and i just wanted to get a plug in there for the book absolutely. on amazon and barnes and noble absolutely uh coming soon to you um what was your question about that? You asked about, oh, about the, the time that's gone by. It's amazing. It's, it's mind-blowing, to tell you the truth, that, you know, in my mind's eye, you know, with Prince, we're all, you know, I'm, he's 20, I'm 30, you know. And in my mind's eye, I always go to that. And I, you know, I forget that this year Prince would have been turning 60, which is mind-blowing. It's just mind-blowing. Mm. And, you know, I'm not even going to tell you how old I am. I, you know, so <laughs> it, you know, looking back on it, it's like, it's like your parents say to you, you know, it goes so quickly. It's like you turn around, it's 40 years later. And the greatest thing is that 
Prince is still on everyone's lips. You know, there are artists that I can bring up that, you know, we heard about them back in the day, but where are they now? And when you have the ability to make yourself a lasting talent like Prince did, that is, it's so deep and so heavy, especially when you're one person and you're not a, a, a rock and roll group, you know what I'm saying? Right. So it's, it's pretty interesting. And, you know, so yeah, in 40 years, 40 years later, still here, but there's a, a being in the creative arts keeps you sort of um, younger in your mind and emotionally than other, you know, when my dad was my age, man, he was this, he was old. Let me tell you, you know, uh, so, uh, I don't feel that way. You know, I'm still listening to everything that comes out. I, you know, I teach at UCLA. So last quarter when I was teaching the business of music, um, I said, let's pick an artist and let's follow their career and let's analyze from a business angle. So up pops Cardi B. So I am forced because of my studio and because of my kids to stay and because of my love of music to stay very current. And I think that keeps you pretty young. Well, as, as you already had mentioned, your book also, that's the other awesome second thing that happens tomorrow, is that the release of your book comes out tomorrow called Famous People Who Have Met Me. And, you know, as you said, there wasn't just the story of just Prince. You have such a vast uh, involvement of a lot of different superstars and, you know, mostly music related that you have kind of crossed paths with, that you've learned things from. And uh, so at what point in time was, was it your, normally it's always the spouses that do this. It is, was it your wife that said, you need to write a book? Or did you just kind of get to that point in your life where you said, you know what, I, I, I need to document everything that's happened to me just so it's on paper or what, what led you to kind of get to that point where you were like, yeah, I, I need to write a book. Well, you know, I'm a pack rat and I've saved everything. I saved all my notes on print, every planning that I did marketing wise, I saved all that. I put it in a box that wound up in a storage space in a warehouse in Minneapolis. What about that cassette tape? That, what about that cassette tape that he the cassette tape that he left on your your porch? You still What's got that? that? That cassette tape he left on your porch? Do you still have I that? I got everything. Oh man, I got that's everything. amazing! All right, go yeah, ahead. I Sorry, everything. I didn't mean to interrupt, yeah. but I had to I'm know. Not if you one still of these that. guys that let stuff out either. But I, I have you know, I'm a pack rat, so I had all my notes. Anytime something interesting happened, I wrote it, put it in a box. I still have that forty years later. And but what was happening is I was sitting around, you know, the story, the old story, sitting around the dinner table or, you know, with people in the business or with friends, you know, and telling these stories. And, you know, obviously or invariably people would say, man, you want to write a book? I said, oh, I don't have time. I'm still, you know, I had moved on from managing artists to buying and selling record labels and publishing and masters and brokering the sales of record labels. And it's like, I don't have time, you know, I got to do this, I'm involved with that. And, um, you know, the bottom line is, is, is that sooner or later, people say, you got to start to do a book. So I started to make notes for a book. And then about four years ago, I, uh, I had gone back, I'd started writing the book. And then when the revolution did a memorial concert at 
uh, First Avenue after Prince died. And it was, I went through a big grief period. It was shocking to me because I'm older. I'm supposed to go first. It was very shocking. Uh, yeah, I know. And I decided to go back to First Avenue and hear the revolution. They also invited me out here to SIR for, uh, when they started rehearsing to say, okay, we want to go on the road again. They invited me to a rehearsal and I just sat and listened to it. And that was helping me through my, through the grief period of it. But when I went back in 2016, I think it was, to hear their memorial concert, I stopped by my warehouse space and I found all these letters that Prince had written me and all these notes that Prince had written me oh my God. 40 years later. Wow. And then I said, okay, now I can finish the book. Now it all makes sense. Ah. And just go and the combination of finding that stuff, my personal notes, my notes from back in the day, you know, living in Minneapolis and even planning. I even found a piece of paper that I drew up with David Z to record the demo tapes. That's now made. Oh, and I, I gave David a copy of it. He couldn't believe it. Man, you kept everything. So <laughs> as I started formulating these stories and the Elvis Presley stories and the, you know, me being out on the road with different artists and started doing that and then telling them to people and they say, you should write a book. And then it was going back to Minneapolis in 2016 and discovering all of those notes, the notes that Prince wrote me. And he wrote the note that he wrote me saying why he doesn't want Earthwind or Maurice White to, you know, to produce him. Right. Uh, and, but his note was so respectful. It wasn't like, man, I don't want that dude anywhere. Near. It was, Owen, I really respect Maurice White, but here's what I want to do for my style. Right. And now, you know, he was 18 when he wrote this, 19. <laughs> I don't want to tell you what I was doing when I was 19. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Me neither. I'm with you. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> he was so focused and so bright and, you know, doesn't happen very often. So mm. that was the impetus for me to, all right, get this book, get this book completed and get it out there. Also, I've been hearing a lot of stories because, you know, success has many fathers. I've actually bumped into people over the years who said, you know, man, I discovered Prince and managed him and brought him out to San Francisco. And I'm like, oh, yeah, man, that's great work what you did. You know, <laughs> people mm. come up to me at parties. Uh, I actually read in a book recently that somebody said, yeah, man, I fired Owen. I was the one that fired Owen. I was like, whoa, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is that? You know, so I figured I better get the story straight here. You know, mm. a lot of people place themselves in history because they, it's convenient to do. But there was only a core group back in the very beginning days. And this is what differentiates is there's a core group of people. And we were not on payroll. We were just operating on sheer belief. I put Bobby Z in that category. I put David Z in that category. The photographer, uh, Robert Whitman, my staff. You know, there was no icon money. There was no money. Right. So we were just, what can we do to get this to the next step? Because his talent deserves it. And he forced you to be on your game just by who he was. Right. So at any rate, that's, that's pretty much my story. Well, I, can you, um, go ahead. Nick. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead Nick. Oh, I was going to ask a question. Um, when, I mean, we were talking earlier, Owen, we were discussing 
uh, Bobby Z and Matt Fink and Dr. Matt Fink and the Revolution, and you were explaining to me how uh, Bobby Z was with Prince from the very, 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 very beginning. And I was wondering, can you tell us how that whole thing, like how they met and how that whole thing came together and how Dr. Matt Fink came into the fold and how the band got put together? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, yeah, and I got a few minutes because I got a, uh, I've got a dinner that I have to be at. But Bobby was my runner in my company. He was the guy that got my dry cleaning done and brought sandwiches and coffee to people. So, and I had known Bobby since he'd been eight years old. I used to, his brother and I, David, were in a band together. And we would go down their basement and David and I would jam and then little eight-year-old Bobby would get up and, you know, he'd be pretending to be a drummer. And it was really interesting because one day, and I think I told you this earlier, one day we're down there and we used to laugh at him. He broke into a groove, man. And this, all of a sudden it was like, whoa, where did he come up with that, you know? And he went off and he drummed in several bands. Oh, I managed another band called the KO Band and we got some notoriety, cut an album. That was another band that I had managed, you know. Um, Bobby was the drummer there. I think he drummed with, I don't know if he drummed with Pepe Willard, but I think he did for a while. Uh, and he was on the scene playing with various various groups, but he was my runner. And he was the, the guy that got the coffee, like I said. And so when I took Prince on, I just said, okay, Bobby, now you got to run Prince around town, get his dry cleaning get him sandwiches. And, and, and so while they were riding around Minneapolis, they bonded in that car. And, and, you know, Prince talked to him about a lot of stuff and, and they exchanged, they kind of bonded. Prince didn't quite, I think he was considering a couple of people for the drummer, maybe Morris Day, maybe his cousin Chaz at the time. Uh, but, you know, it, he told me this and Bobby told me when they were riding around in the car, getting dry cleaning and taking Prince to the doctor, Prince talked about had it, having more of a rainbow band, you know, that he didn't want, um, you know, he, he wanted a lot of different people in this band. He wanted, and, so, and, and so then we organized these rehearsals at my office, and, uh, which was on Loring, Port, uh, Loring Park, downtown Minneapolis. and. And Bobby just started jamming with Prince. And a lot of musicians back in the day, great musicians out of Minneapolis would stop by and jam in the office. I have the re those recordings, by the way. So wow. I have about of course two you hours do. Of those jams. Of, of, <laughs> of, of, of those, of the, because I wanted to record them so I could listen to them back. I found those in, in my warehouse space, too. So as I think Prince was jamming with Bobby, he realized, hey, this is the route to go. And then he was in the band. Matt came along, you know, semi through Bobby because we all went to the same high school, St. Louis Park High School. I'm older than Bobby and Matt, but uh, they were in a class together. And I think that Bobby suggested Matt, but also uh, it, it, Prince wasn't ready to buy it yet. And then Matt started calling me and bugging me. And then I called Bobby and I said, this guy Matt is bugging me. And, Bo and Bobby said, yeah, he'll do that, you know? And I said, well, do I turn him on to Prince? And Bobby said, yeah, I think you should. So I called Prince and I said, man, why don't you give this guy a try here? And, you know, it was really because Bobby and he were originally friends. 
But then I called Prince and I said, man, give him a tryout. And then we were trying to fill in the guitar part of it. We just couldn't find anything. Uh, it's in my book, too, about how we came out to L.A. and tried to audition people. And then we decided to come back to Minneapolis, and we weren't finding the guitar players that we wanted. So I put an ad in the local music, couple of music, local music magazines saying, you know, a guitar player wanted for bands signed to Warner Brothers or something like that. And Des answered the Des answered the uh, the ad and he called me and I said, all right, come on over to the rehearsal space. And uh, and uh, you can try out. And he said, well, man, you know, I'm. I'm in a band. I only have an hour or two and then we've got to go to Wisconsin or something and play. And I, you know, to me, that was a big trigger, which was good. You want to hire a musician that's currently working in a band if you're going to bring in a music. So uh, that was a big impetus for me to alert Prince. And then he dropped by the warehouse space and, uh, you know, he played and Prince was a little noncommittal in the beginning. I think he wanted to get to know Des on a, on another level. And so um, uh, uh, he wanted to talk to him some more, but I think he knew he was going to add Des into the band. Uh, Gail, he met, uh, I think it was through his cousin Chaz, because she was living over north. And I think it was through uh, uh, Chaz who turned, uh, turned him on to uh, this, this keyboard player. So anyway, I got to get going. I know my yes. wife is trying to reach me. and uh, Absolutely. We'd be at dinner. <laughs> thank you so, well, I, let me just take so, this opportunity. Thank you so, so much for your time. For those of you who just joined us, you missed it, but that's okay. We'll we, we will repost the interview with the one and only Mr. Owen Husney. He has a brand new book that's going to be released April 7th, which is tomorrow. If you're listening to this live, it's called Famous People Who Have Met Me. If you want to follow him, you can follow him on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash owen.husney. You can also follow him on Twitter at at rockmanager, but it's at RCKMGR. <clears throat> you can, it's going to be, the book is going to be released uh, via Rothko Press. You can go to rothkopress.com and see more about it, but it's also available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble and, of course, all your book places. I need every single Funkatopian that's out oh, there to go by out the and way, get it. Yes. One more thing. I sure. do, if you want to see some stuff uh, just about me and some of the pictures, and you can also order the book off my website, which is famouspeoplethebook.com. Famous People the Book. Dot com, and you can go onto the website and you can order the book from there. And I have a site with a lot of pictures and my history and early Minneapolis history that's post that I have on that website as well. Oh, well, thank you so, so, thank so much. You guys. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Owen. It is an absolute honor. Thank you, Mr. Yeah, Hussey. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to okay, you later. Thank you very much. Save your marriage. Go do that dinner. All right, cool. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you, Owen. 